You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning, Alana. We said that a lot here. Uh, I am. I've been looking forward to this. I am excited to begin our semester together. I hope you had a great first week back here on campus with things back into our normal rhythms. And if some of you, you're able to join an in-person small group this week off campus, and and some of you, you, you chose to uh, your small group met over Zoom. That's uh, great. I'm glad we have these options in this weird time that we're living in these weird days. You know, if, if you aren't a part of one of our small group communities. I urge you, make this semester, make this semester the semester where you connect to one of those communities. You know, each week, our small groups, they get a chance to engage with the passage that we're going to be teaching here on Sunday. It's a chance to do your pre-homework, to, to look at it together, to be shaped by the word of the Lord. It's also a time to build friendships, to go deep in community, to be encouraged in your faith as you follow Jesus with your peers. It's time to, to pray for one another, to share your lives. Don't let pandemic isolation be the norm. Connect in a small group. Build community. Get to know your fellow believers. So reach out to us uh, either through that connection card or or, uh, through the website to let us know if you're interested in joining one of those. We can help you get connected to a small group. Details are on our website. You can fill out a connection card. All right, well, this morning, this morning we're beginning our study of the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's a book rich with stories you may have heard before. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, they're famous stories. This book, it inspired a diet. It's, it's inspired such phrases as thrown to the lions, right? Um, uh, writing the writings on the wall. It's, there's, there's all kinds of, of action in this book. There's, there's dreams, there's death decrees, fiery furnaces, there's jealousy, trickery, visions, and hungry lions. <laughs> in 12 chapters, in 12 chapters, we get six narratives and four visions. It's composed in two different languages. There's just so much going on in this book. So much. I'm excited about it. I've been looking forward to studying this together. I hope, I hope you're excited and have been looking forward to it as well. Now, throughout this book, throughout the whole book, the message is clear. The whole book is all about God's sovereignty. God is the one in control. Whether or not anyone else sees it, God is the one that's in control. Over and over again, we're reminded as we engage with this book of the power of God and that God will prevail even if it looks like everything has been lost from a worldly perspective. See, the earthly kingdoms, the the Babylonians, the the Persians, the Medes, they'll all pass away throughout history. They're going to come and go. Earthly kingdoms will come and go. But God's kingdom, God's kingdom will be everlasting. He will reign forever. In light of that, in light of that message from Daniel, we're we're encouraged. We We can stand courageous for the Lord, no matter what circumstances we face. And that's what we see throughout the book. Now, now I mentioned that the book is composed in two languages, which is a great trivia question for you. Which Old Testament book? Daniel. Uh, The languages are Hebrew and Aramaic. And this is significant, because the bulk of the book, the six chapters we're going to be studying, are predominantly in Aramaic. 
That's the common language of the day. The common language of Daniel in Babylon. So these stories, they're not just stories for the exiles of Judah. Not just stories for God's people in, the, uh, in captivity. These are stories for all to hear. Stories for all to read and understand. Stories that acknowledge the might and power of this God. And to see him as the one in control. The book begins, in, very, in chapter 1, it tells us right away, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he attacks Jerusalem. The year is 597 B.C. Jerusalem, it falls. And Babylon carts off a massive amount of God's people. Just taken. Daniel and his friends are among those. So the stories we encounter in this book, they showcase God's people remaining faithful to him, seeking to worship and honor him while being held captive in a foreign land. There are people in exile, a people captive in a land other than what God had promised and given to them. And this is important. This factor is important. This audience factor, because we are not that unlike them. Yes, we live with religious freedom in this country, and we deeply enjoy that privilege. But I'm sure, I'm sure if we all think, We've likely encountered a time, or can recall a time, where we felt on the outside because of our faith. A time when we heard people talking or our friends expressed frustration with Christians because they do this or that, or they believe X or Y, or they have that political allegiance or hold that political stance. A time where we felt excluded or judged or dismissed because of our faith in Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we live as exiles in a culture that doesn't know Jesus. Maybe, maybe that doesn't connect with you. Maybe you feel like that's, that's what pastors say, right? Uh, and maybe you haven't really experienced much religious hostility, and, and that's great if, if that's the case. I wish that for all of us. I wish that for all of you. But the fact is, no matter who you are as a follower of Jesus, as a as a image bearer of God. You live in exile. Since Eden, we have lived in exile. Since the fall, since sin entered the world, we have been God's people apart from God, apart from the way he intended things to be. Since Eden, we live in exile. See, in Daniel's days, that reality was a much more present reality for them. As they walked the streets of Babylon, as, as they engaged with those that you know, were foreigners and, and worshipped foreign gods, they could, they could sense their, isolated, their exile. They knew it. They experienced it daily. For us, it's still a present reality. Though maybe a little bit in a different way. See, we await the return of Jesus when he will rule the earth as it was intended to be. When all things, when all creation will be restored again. So we wait in exile. The book, because uh, you know, I like to do this for you, it's, it's structured real simply. I'll give you, give you a book chart, hopefully on the screen here. Uh, the first six chapters, they're just they're narratives, they're stories, historic narratives. And they're about Daniel and his friends in the kings of Babylon's courts. Chapter one, it gives us the historic background and establishes that Daniel and his friends are devoted to God, and though they find themselves in a foreign land, they'll not defile themselves with the food, drink, or worship of these foreign gods. 
From there, there are five narratives, which we'll be covering, and they cover Daniel and his friends as they engage with the rulers of Babylon. The final six chapters of the book, they cover uh, their apocalyptic literature. They cover four visions God gave Daniel. And these visions, they all took place in in that first half of the book, so it kind of rewinds you a bit as you go through the back half of the book. These are visions that were received during the span of that first half of the book, uh, and they're all about the future of God. The future God is bringing about his ultimate reign. We're going to cover the first of that vision, and we're going to leave the rest of those for homework for you to do on your own. (laughs) (laughs) Throughout the book, throughout the whole book, the story is all about these visions, these narratives. It's all about reinforcing the truth that ultimately God is the one in control, that ultimately God will prevail. Despite being in captivity, despite being ruled by Babylon, God will once again establish his kingdom and rule over his people. It offers hope to people in exile. It does the same for us today as a people in exile. A people awaiting the fullness of God's kingdom. A people afflicted with a plague, restrictions, and hostility. A people longing for righteous and godly leaders and governing officials. Throughout our exile, we cling to the hope of Jesus' return and his forever reign. Hope in exile. That's what the book of Daniel offers us. So with that background, let's jump into our passage for the morning, the beginning of our study. We're looking at Daniel chapter 2. We summarized chapter 1 for you already. Now these narratives that we're going to be looking at, they're quite long. Uh, You maybe saw this in your small group this week, so it's unlikely that a teacher is going to read each of those verses in there. We're going to summarize, we're going to draw your attention to parts uh, just for sake of time to move through things. I encourage you, read it all. It's good. It's all there for a reason. Daniel begins... Uh, Daniel 2, it begins with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and he's quite worked up. Quite worked up. He's a great king, the great conqueror, the ruler of the mightiest nation at the time. And he's plagued with nightmares. He can't sleep. What do these dreams mean? They're robbing him of sleep. He can't figure it out. In his dream, he has has seen a, a statue of a man. Its head is made of gold, its chest and arms are silver, its middle and thighs are bronze, and and legs iron and and feet iron and clay. Suddenly, a stone is cut from a mountain, and it rolls down and strikes the statue, smashing it to pieces, to dust, which blows away in the wind. And then, and then that stone grows into a great mountain, and fills the whole earth. Night after night, he's plagued with this nightmare. It's clear to him this is a message from the gods, an important message, yet its interpretation eludes him. Is is he a huge statue? Is someone the stone coming to crush him? Is, is he the stone who has crushed others and his kingdom will, gr- will grow and expand forever? What does it mean? That's where we find Nebuchadnezzar. And the narrative, it unfolds in, in sort of five scenes, five key scenes. So let's take a look at scene one. In scene one, we have Nebuchadnezzar and his wise men. Let's see how this works out. The king, he must know what this dream means, right? He's plagued by it. 
concerning to him. So he calls together his counselors, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, anybody that might be able to shed light on what this dream means. And so they dutifully come with their dream interpretation manuals in hand, as they would, ready to decipher the dream. Tell us, O king, we'll tell you what it means. But this isn't an ordinary dream. The king needs to know the true meaning of this dream. Not some fabricated guesswork, not something written in a book. What does this dream mean? So he throws a curveball at them. They must tell him the dream and its interpretation. His lips are sealed. He will not tell them what he has dreamt. They must prove the validity of their interpretation by showing they know the dream to begin with before it's been, trust, before it's been told to them. That way he knows he can trust them. So these, these hacks, these, these men claiming to be wise and magical, right, that have parlor tricks and, and ways of deceiving the king, they're quite taken aback by this. They, they go back and forth with him. Tell us, O king, uh, your dream. Just, just tell us and, and we can interpret it. I'm sure we can. We have the tools to do so. Nebuchadnezzar, it tells us he grows tired and angry with them, furious. He declares that if no one can help him in this way. If no one can offer what he has asked of them, they are useless and should be wiped off the face of the earth, eradicated from his kingdom. The counselors, they throw up their hands and they declare what is probably the only wise statement they make in this entire book. <laughs> only the gods can do what the king is asking. No man is capable of doing such a thing. And it's foreshadowing. So the king, the king, he does what he says he would. He orders all the wise men of Babylon be executed. You know, as, as one might do in this case, right? If you're Nebuchadnezzar and you have all the power, why not just kill them all, right? They're useless to you. And, it, it, you know, maybe, maybe that seems an exaggeration or far-fetched to you. And if that's the case, if, you're, if you find, you scratch your head and wonder, is this really true? Is this really what happened? I urge you, read history. Read about Babylon. Read about Nebuchadnezzar. This is not a stretch for who this man was. History paints him in this light. He was brutal. The Babylonians were brutal. This is in line with his character that we see in history. And so, the second scene comes upon us. We have Daniel and Arioch, the, the captain of the king's guard, the chief executioner, carrying out the king's orders to rid the kingdom of these wise men, these useless wise men. Let's pick up our passage in verse 13, where we find Daniel in the midst of all of this. Here we're going to see Daniel, his response as he gets word of this decree, that he's to be put to death. He and his fellow friends are to be put to death. Verse 13, So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the, the king's captain, Why is this decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made known the matter to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So the, the king's decree went out. The executioner goes to Daniel and his friends to carry out the order. 
the Jewish wise men, they weren't included in this original cohort of, of counselors, of wise men. They weren't there at the earlier gathering, so they're baffled. Why this order? Why this decree to be executed? They're confused. Daniel, understandably, he's confused, and he's confused why the urgency? This is the first we've heard about it. We haven't even been able to offer an interpretation. Why is he and everyone else to be put to death? So Ariok, he, he tells Daniel, and he tells him, uh, and Daniel says, get a time before the king. I will give an interpretation of this dream. See, this is, this is the first time Daniel's heard of any of this, as he's about to be arrested to be executed. But he still requests a time before the king. He says, give me a chance. He hasn't yet heard the content of the dream. He doesn't have an interpretation. He hasn't even met the king face-to-face -face on this matter yet. Yet with his life on the line, and those of the wise men of Babylon, he requests a time before the king. Despite being in exile, despite being carted off from Babylon, from Jerusalem, maybe just three years prior, forced to serve this foreign king, Daniel acts with confidence and boldness. He trusts God will provide and spare his life. Give me an audience before the king. That is faith. That's faith. He acts with assurance. He acts without assurance, sorry, knowing that God will provide. He trusts in the character and trusts in the knowledge of who this God is that he serves. May we all be filled with such faith. Faith that knows the God we serve, knows the God we worship, and are willing to trust our very lives into his hands to be saved. May we all be filled with such faith. Daniel's filled with faith, yet his faith is not a faith that leaves him on the sideline waiting for God to act. No, he, he's, it's a faith that motivates him to action, a faith that motivates him to petition God to spare him, to have mercy. So he recruit, And he recruits his friends to do the same. That brings us to our third scene which is focused on Daniel and God. Let's read and see how that plays out. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. God came through. Daniel goes to prayer. Faced with this, Daniel goes to prayer. Not just him, he recruits his friends to join in. His friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you don't know them, come back next week and you'll learn all about them. It's chapter 3 of the book. The point here, though, it, it's that they seek God for his mercy. For They seek God to intervene and reveal the truth to the king. They, this way, God can, can provide an out so Daniel and his friends, the rest of the wise men, they're, they're not to be executed, they can be spared. And let's read, that's just what God does. He's a merciful God. He reveals the mystery to Daniel in a vision. And now, if the king will just grant Daniel that audience, they will all be spared. The truth will be made known. 
So upon realizing this, he offers praise to God. Daniel praises God, saying the following. He says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Did you catch that? He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. What powerful words from a follower of God in exile. He's ruled by a foreign king. Yet Daniel's faith is steadfast in God. He doesn't let the present circumstances call into question the power and goodness of God. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings like Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, who was, uh, who was destroyed as they were all captured. And he raises up kings like Nebuchadnezzar, who is now ruling over him. And now Daniel serves. Daniel goes on and he gives thanks and praise to God for making known these things to him, making known the king's dream and its interpretation. And so filled with the knowledge of that revelation, and uh, it's from the Lord Daniel enters scene four, where we see him again with Arioch, and they are the focus. Daniel tells Arioch, the executioner, that he has the information the king requests. The slaughter of the wise men can be halted. It doesn't need to take place. What the king desires has been made known to Daniel. We can, we can help the king now. We can assuage his anger. So Arioch brings Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar quickly. And standing before the king, Arioch, he claims to have found Daniel, who has brought the interpretation for the king. He stands, it stands out in the text, right? Arioch, he's done, he's done literally nothing but go and gather up the people to be executed. And he takes credit for finding Daniel and bringing forth the interpretation. He wants in on the riches and promotion, the prestige that will come when the king finds this favorable uh, interpretation. And that's just the way of the flesh before power, isn't it? That's the way of our sinful nature. We self-promote. We angle to get our, our, our good. We get our share of the credit. To claim responsibility for another's work. To be put forward in front of another. That's just what Arioch is doing here. He wants in on this. The king, though, he's through with games and wise men and, and people not, not following through. People trying to buy more time. He looks past Ariarch to Daniel. And he bluntly asks, Can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? The final saying focuses on Daniel before King Nebuchadnezzar. The true wise men answering the king's call for revelation. Let's see how this plays out. Picking back up in verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to, be, to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanter, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery the king has asked. But 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came the thoughts of what would be after this. And he who revealed the mysteries made known to you what is to be. So here Daniel makes clear just what the previous wise men did. What the king asked cannot be done by any man, not even Daniel. But, but there is a God in heaven, the very God Daniel knows and worships, the God Daniel prayed to and who revealed the dream and its interpretation. This is the God who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream, the dream about what is to come. See, Daniel, he doesn't take credit for the interpretation or knowing the dream. He humbly gives credit to God for revealing it. The contrast to Arioch here is, is so strong in the text. Daniel gives glory to God for the miraculous, rather than self-promoting and angling for his own glory in this situation. Humbly, Daniel present, passes along the message the Lord revealed to him. Let's keep reading and, and hear what that message is. Verse 31, Daniel says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image at its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff in the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So here it is. Daniel reveals the dream. Until this point in the story, no one but the king and Daniel have known the content of the dream. A great statue of four different segments comprised of, of different metals and clay is crushed by a stone cut by no human hand. Not a trace remains of the statue, and the stone grows into a great mountain and reaches the ends of the earth. No wonder the king was perplexed. Is he the statue or the stone? Will he be crushed or expand? What about these different segments and materials? What is going on in this dream? And Daniel goes on to offer the explanation. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is the head of gold, the mighty king with an expansive kingdom and dominion over many. All of this has been given to the king by God. God himself has given it into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Yet his kingdom, his kingdom will not last forever. Another will rise after him, an inferior kingdom, not of gold but of silver, and after that yet another inferior kingdom of bronze, and so on, of iron and clay. Now traditionally these kingdoms, they've been identified as, as Babylon and Persia and, and Greece under Alexander the Great and, and Rome and 
that's you know that's history for you. And it's a, it's a neat thought. It's a, it's a fun area of study. It may very well be exactly what God intended in this dream. But don't get lost in identifying these other kingdoms. That's not the point. The key here are not those kingdoms. The key is what comes next in the dream. What replaces those kingdoms. You see, these, these kingdoms, they, they all pass away. They're all fleeting. And with that regard, they can stand for any earthly ruler, any earthly kingdom that's passing away. Let's see the final part of this interpretation and what's going on with this stone that grows. We're picking back up in verse 44 here. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has been made to has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation true and sure. God's kingdom is the stone. It will come and crush to pieces the kingdoms of the world, and it will never be destroyed. All other kingdoms and rulers will pass away, blown away as dust in the wind, as the Lord's kingdom is established and expands. In the end, in the end, there is but one king and one kingdom, God and his kingdom. Upon hearing this, upon understanding this dream, Nebuchadnezzar falls to the ground, showing respect for Daniel. He goes on to praise God, stating that, that truly Daniel's God is God of the gods, ruler of kings, a revealer of mysteries. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he experienced the work and power of God. He recognized it and likewise gave credit to God for it. He goes on to promote Daniel and gives him lavish gifts and, and honor, making him head of the wise men of Babylon. And, and Daniel, with his newly found favor with the king, he requests that his friends who prayed with him be recognized and promoted as well. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were put in charge of affairs in Babylon. Come back next week and see how that works out for him. <laughs> so why this story? Why this story? Why are we talking about it here this morning? Why am I excited about it? Why has it been told and retold for centuries? See, the message God gave Nebuchadnezzar in a dream was that his kingdom would be replaced by another, and another, and another after that, and so on, until eventually the kingdom of God would replace all human kingdoms. The message was recorded and preserved for God's people in exile, offering hope and assurance of God's ultimate plan and control. Babylon, their captor, would eventually pass away and be replaced by another until God's kingdom came. God's kingdom was on the way. It would replace all human kingdoms. It would fill the whole earth and it would last forever. 
And then, 600 years later, after that message, Jesus came to the earth. He entered creation in the form of a baby. The kingdom of Babylon had long passed away, and new oppressors were over God's people. Rome, they ruled the world. And Jesus' birth was announced by the angels. Luke's Gospel records that they, they say, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the stone that replaces all human kingdoms. Jesus is the stone. And then 30 or so years later, Jesus begins his public ministry. He proclaims the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus, as he preaches and heals and performs miracles, he brings the kingdom of God into our world. In Matthew's Gospel, we read that Jesus says, if, by, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And while that kingdom was inaugurated, why it began, why it was brought near, its king was put to death by the rulers of the day. Yet God turned what looked like defeat into victory, raising Jesus from the grave, defeating sin and igniting the expansion of that kingdom outward to all people. Just as we saw in the book of Acts last semester, didn't we? In Matthew's Gospel, he records Jesus quoting Psalm 118, applying it to himself. Jesus says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is, a, it is marvelous in our eyes. He goes on to say that the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And anyone who it falls on will be crushed like dust. Jesus is the stone that topples kingdoms. He struck the evil one and put an end to his rule. Now the stone begins to grow into the everlasting kingdom. The kingdom has arrived already, but we await its completion in the second coming of Christ. Align our life. Our hope is in that kingdom. With hope, we look to God's everlasting kingdom that replaces all others. You see, the message of God to, to his people in the days of Daniel was of hope in the coming everlasting kingdom. That's the same message for us today. Hope in the coming everlasting kingdom where Jesus reigns. Would you pray with me?